0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we will be discussing Turkey's invasion of Syria. And I have two excellent uh, regular podcasters to come and help us make sense of this from Istanbul we have Asla Aydin Tashbash who is uh, our senior research fellow who leads on uh, our work on Turkey and sitting here with me in London is Jeremy Shapiro the research director at ECFR and frequent commentator on Turkey on this podcast. So Asla we have uh an extraordinary set of circumstances this week on the eve of president biden's visit sorry vice president biden uh, uh, only in his dreams as he uh, is he the president of the united states um vice president biden's visit to uh to turkey when relations were already relatively complex we hear that about uh, this deployment of, of tanks into Syria, the threat to the Kurdish troops to, to withdraw to the Euphrates, um, uh, to the other side of the, of the Euphrates River. And um, the world uh, is once again looking at Turkey and what it's up to. Um, can you explain what's going on? Um, actually,
1: it's sort of strange that Turkey's is in the news at least once a month, but most often every other week, in some big major global story, whether it's an ISIS attack or a coup attempt and now an invasion into Syria. Basically, uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, there is about a 100-kilometer stretch on the Turkish-Syrian border, on the Syrian side, which is controlled by ISIS, and the Turkish and Kurdish rivalry in terms of who will take over, ISIS enclave. It is definitely a very uh, critical and dangerous spot. This is, well, this is the ISIS, this is the way the Islamic State enters the rest of the world. This is where the jihadists go in and out. And certainly people who have planned Paris attacks and uh, other attacks in in Brussels certainly have come out from this route. And i Girablus. the Syrian town that Turkey has uh, gone in, Turkish forces have gone in yesterday, is actually right at the door of, right at the doorstep of that ISIS enclave. Now, uh, to the east and to the west of that territory, it's Kurdish territory, what Turkey does not want, and has made this very, has said this very explicitly, Turkey does not want its entire southern flank on the Syrian border to be controlled by Syrian Kurds. So it's interesting that we're talking about Kurds and not ISIS. Of course, what's Kurds got to do with this, but it's every, the whole issue is now sort of mixed up uh, both in the Turkish political discourse and in terms of the Turkish political thinking. In other words, we are going to capture this this uh, town that's currently controlled by ISIS, Turkish officials are telling us, and the defense minister, because we do not want the Kurdish forces to take over this town. Uh, what Turks don't want is a contagious, contagious, contagio- a continuous Kurdish zone. They want uh, the non-Kurdish Arab forces, Arab opposition forces, Syrian forces, to control this particular stretch and seal off the Turkish border. Now, uh, this has all been uh, part of the discussions with the United States. It's the, the, the Turkish. There has long been a talk about Turks going into the ISIS zone. Uh, This is something Americans initially wanted. Then they were worried about the Turkish-Kurdish rivalry and perhaps uh, clashes in Syria. So they decided actually that maybe to put the break on hold. And then something else happened. Kurds started moving fast and faster than Turks had expected and capturing territory in key towns like Mumbach, which got Turks decide to move in. Um, part, partly also driven by a desire to show the world that Turkish military is not dead, Turkey is not dead, yes there was a coup attempt but we're, uh, we're alive and kicking.
0: So Jeremy you've been looking at it from the other side of the, uh, of the equation because from a, from a U.S. perspective, the Kurds are the only bright spot in in the entire fight against ISIS, certainly seen as more effective fighters than the, the different troops that were being trained at vast expense by, by the Americans. Yeah, the Americans have never been successful
2: at creating um, uh, any sort of Arab ground force against ISIS in Syria, and that's always been seen as a huge problem for the anti-ISIS war. and. You know, it's always interesting in Syria to see that uh, each country has its own priorities, and it's the sort of interaction of priorities that creates uh, the policy. And in in Syri- in in Syria, it's very clear that for the Americans, uh, ISIS is the priority, and for the Turks, the Kurds are the priority. Um, and I think I think what the what the Americans have been doing over the last couple of years is trying to paint the Turks into a corner where they're trying to say. Look, unless you pay attention to our priority, ISIS, we're going to use um, the, the Kurdish card as our ground force because we'll have no other choice uh, and ISIS is too important to us. And that will create problems for you. And so, the only, the, so you can either accept that problem or you can help us with the ISIS fight. And actually, from a U.S. standpoint, this uh, – This although, is a good thing then. Well, it's, 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 it represents a culmination of an effort um, to get Turks more into the ISIS fight. And I think exactly as Asli says, it comes through the Kurdish dimension. The Turks aren't really, haven't really taken on the U.S. priority for ISIS. But the Americans have put them into a place
0: where their Kurdish priority dictates that they fight against ISIS. And coupled with that is also the the kind of shift in in policy in Damascus because we also heard about um uh, about moves by Assad to try and uh, take on some of these uh, uh, forces which um, opens up the the scope for a rapprochement between damascus and and ankara is that right well it's too early to talk about a
1: rapprochement, but certainly Ankara has seized its sort of very uh, harsh rhetoric about Damascus, you would have uh, President Erdogan talk about Assad being a murderer, a genocide, a killer, et cetera, on a weekly basis, and I, I don't even remember last time he mentioned the word Assad. So I think there's definitely a silence, but a disagreement among various players in Ankara in terms of uh, the next move. What they're doing instead, instead of talking to Damascus, it's talking to Russians. Turkey is, there. Turkey is able to go into Syria with tanks and uh, its special operation forces and planes because Erdogan had a meeting with Putin right after the coup on the 9th of August and, and also had a conversation with him last week, a telephone conversation. It is thanks to the star in the relationship with Moscow that Turks are able to fly planes over Syrian airspace. They had not been able to do that since the downing of the... Uh, Russian fighter jet by Turkish Air Force and I think that uh, no one would take that the Turkish military would not take that risk would not take the risk of a Russian uh, sort of uh, retaliation up until there was uh, finally a rapprochement with Moscow so the fact that they are able to go in now is a green light and 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 I, and I think some real logistical help from U.S. forces but also a green light from Russia. And uh, the, everyone has different interests. As you have said, Turkey's priority is the Kurds. America's priority is ISIS. And uh, the Syrian groups have other interests and in all of that. But the Russians, too, are part of this equation and a big part of this equation.
0: So, Jeremy, do you think that, weirdly, this might um, form the basis for some kind of great power... Uh, rapprochement, because if the US is narrowing its objectives to ISIS, if Turkey's main goal is about that strip of land that Asla was describing earlier, and the Russians uh, want to to keep Assad in place, but are kind of uh, comfortable having some kind of action against ISIS, that there might be uh, scope for some kind of coming together... Um, uh, and a, a willingness to to um, ignore some of the big differences in terms of Syria's future ideal form of governance.
2: Yeah, well, one would never want to predict such a thing in the Syrian Civil War. But I do think that this is at least a step in that direction, for better or for worse. The Americans have, for quite some time, been in a position where they're willing to in a similar way that Asa described in Turkey, sort of stop talking about Assad, stop focusing on Assad without actually changing their position on Assad. And the Turks um, have moved in that direction too. Uh, The Russians obviously have been there for a long time. So uh, there is a certain, there is increasing agreement among the international sponsors, but but still out there um, uh, as not part of this consensus are the Saudis and possibly uh, the Iranians. And until those two get on board with this consensus, um, I don't think you're likely to see a sufficient enough international cooperation to actually make a, a huge difference in the fighting on the ground. But I do think that getting the Turks on board with the emerging US-Russian consensus is is helpful, at least.
0: But Meanwhile, you have these horrendous pictures coming out of Aleppo every day and a huge uh, move... Uh, by the media to put these humanitarian issues, which are the byproduct of, of Russian action into the into the mix, how do you see that affecting uh, opinion both in Turkey asla but also in the West?
1: Well I think there is an unknown negotiate. there is a part of this, there is a deal uh, that we don 't know about, and i don 't want to sound conspiratorial that many of the forces, the Arab forces, opposition forces, not so moderate some of them, some of them are more moderate, various remnants of the Syrian army, some are various jihadist groups, etc. But many of them are brought in by Turkey from Aleppo. So uh the Russians having said yes to a Turkish incursion, I wonder if part of the subtext is Turkey not supporting Or pulling back some of the opposition groups that are resisting Russians in Aleppo. I mean, I know this sounds like a conspiracy, but I do think that there is a quid pro of some sort regarding Aleppo in all of this. Aleppo is a major, um, is a critical place in terms of how we get to the transition and negotiation and negotiating table. I think that I would think that the recent flare-up in violence there had to do with Saudis, Saudis and Turkey-backed groups gaining strength on the ground over the past few weeks. So we have to see if that picture will change. Maybe Turkey Turks will instead decide to concentrate on Jarabulus and the ISIS zone on their border.
0: How do you
2: see it, Jeremy? Uh, well, I'm not sure if there's been a deal, but I would certainly agree that the that the Aleppo piece is really critical. We've seen a lot of opposition gains there over the past few weeks. Um, and um, I, I think what that means is that there is at least there is at least the opportunity for them to try to freeze in place where they are and to try to, and to for both sides to accept that they're not really going to conquer each other's part. Of Aleppo, which is which would be the basis for a Turkish-Russian deal, but it would be this would not be a deal that um, would be very popular on the ground with either the Assad regime or with the opposition groups that have made such hard-won gains in in recent days. And what we really don't know about those groups is the degree we know that they depend a lot on outside support, but we don't understand, or at least I don't, the degree to which that outside support comes from Turkey. And the degree to which it comes from Saudi Arabia, and how all of those links work, and so we're we're, we're a li- I'm a little bit confused, at least, about the leverage that Turkey has on those groups in the absence of um, cooperation with Saudi Arabia.
0: So, how do you both think that these events are, are going to impact on the wider relationship between Turkey and the West, which has been pretty bumpy relationship, multi-dimensional? with the refugee crisis playing a really important part in in the EU's relations with Turkey, the fight against ISIS and regional questions playing a bigger role in in the US's relations. Uh, But everything became quite intertwined um, uh, with the the coup, with the Turkish demands for the extradition of Fethullah Gulen um, and uh, the whole... Uh, raising of, of the temperature around um, the, the what is seen as a tepid response to uh, to condemning the coup from from uh, from Turkey's Western allies by by uh, by Erdogan and and and, uh, and um, his his colleagues in the Turkish government.
1: Well, the Biden visit went a long way. I have to say, I was surprised in terms of uh, his impact and ability to smooth things over. Of course, this will continue to be a very bumpy and difficult relationship. And as long as Fatulakulam is in, in the state, it's going to be a constant sort of haggling about what happens, expedition, the documents, he sent this, it's not in English, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all this, like, to, to, back and forth in the background. But I do think, but of course the vice president is known to be someone who was able to smooth over uh, difficult relationships with with difficult partners in the past, including Mariki and uh, various other leaders. So he he was extremely charming in Ankara yesterday and coming out and saying, "I I feel so guilty for not coming earlier, I didn't know this. Uh, talking about the trauma, lightening it to 9-11, so saying everything that Turks wanted to hear. On top, he made a very strong call for Turks to pull back to the east of Euphrates River. He said, you will not have our support as United States and uh, if you go west of Euphrates. Now, this was something the turks wanted to hear all along and i think it was very significant and important for turkey and i do think that somehow u.s is also laying some sort of a red line down for kurds and uh, and there is a sense perhaps not with everybody in washington but with some people that the kurds you know Kurdish expansion, there should be a limit to Kurdish expansion in Syria, but, they, but maybe there's a sense of overreach, et cetera. So these sentiments are shifting and shifting very fast. Two months ago in Washington, people felt, oh, Turks have told us now we need to go with the Kurds, and now some people are saying Kurds are overreaching, et cetera. So I really, it's very really difficult to do proper analysis and long-term projections, as far as I'm concerned, in this sort of extremely... Quick sh- quick shifting uh, uh, volatile situation.
2: Uh, I would say I mean I, I basically agree with that, but I would say that the the um, the US Turkish relationship has become a very bad marriage. and it's a bad marriage in the sense that they that the partners recognize that they need each other, uh, but they don't really like each other and they don't really trust each other. Uh, and so what that <laughs> that's a, a more pointed way of putting it, but yes. Um, and I think that that's that's true on both sides at this point. And so what it's been reduced to is a sort of recognition of um, of mutual need, and it and a reduction to essentially transactions, whereby they realize common interests with each other. They try to get as much out of each other as they can for each particular thing, and they keep and they put a lot of pressure on each other to get what they want. Um, and so what you're seeing, I think, what you see in this in this recent episode is a sort of successful effort at a transaction, which is certainly a good thing. But I don't think that it represents any sort of change in the basic contours of this bad marriage. Uh, And so we're going to continue to move forward on these very difficult transactions. Um, And I think we'll continue, we will see in the future probably transactions which fail. And uh, the, the obvious one to point to and the most important one is the extradition of Gulen, um, which is going to become, and I think is becoming, the most important element in the U.S.-Turkish relationship, uh, the most contentious, I should say. Um, and and I think we're going to, and you know, Biden really wasn't able to deliver much on that one uh, beyond saying that we're going to look at it carefully. He struggled to give um, the Turks an explanation of how the U.S. judicial system is separate from the presidency, which I don't think they bought. Uh, And so uh, I think we're going to see continual problems within U.S.-Turkish relations, which will impinge on all of these issues. And I think that that's what explains some of the seesawing between U.S. support for the Kurds and U.S. support for the Turks. It's not that the U.S. has ever believed that it was a good idea to have the Kurds take all of northern Syria and to create a quasi-state entity there. And they've always been worried about the overstretch. And they've always been worried about the capacity and willingness of the Kurds to expand into Arab areas in Syria. But they have found the Kurds to be a useful mechanism for creating Turkish compliance on specific transactions. And they've moved back and forth in their support for the for the Kurds as necessary to uh, encourage better deals from the Turks.
0: So... The other marriage, which is possibly even more uh, dysfunctional than the U.S.-Turkey marriage, is the EU-Turkey marriage. How do you see that shaping up, Asla? We've got uh, some quite important uh, milestones over the over the next few months, which have still been unresolved: the visa-free issue, Turkey's uh, um, cooperation on the on the refugee issue. Um, but there is also growing talk in the European Parliament and in some European capitals after the counter coup efforts about whether uh to suspend the accession process with Turkey um that came to a head in discussions about the death penalty uh but there are all sorts of uh uh things which could lend uh politicians. Uh, for national political reasons to to want to take a tough stance against turkey in in, in different European capitals over the months ahead and i 'm sure that um that Erdogan in his current mood is is likely to respond very aggressively to to anything which is seen to to be interfering in turkey 's internal politics well um,
1: it's even a more difficult relationship than the The one with Washington, partly because there's specific processes and deadlines. The number one, the most important being October deadline for visa liberalization, et cetera, et cetera. And while, you know, the mood is not different uh, in Europe than it is in America, and there's definitely, I think, uh, a very, uh, there has been a a tepid response to uh, the coup and Turks are angry that Europeans were not there uh, to defend Turkish democracy. On the other hand, uh, Turkey is very much of a, a local issue in Europe. We've seen this with Brexit, it's even more so in Germany, in France, in other countries, many of these countries, many of these countries are facing election over the next two years. So it's really difficult to uh, foresee a situation in which, uh, the current accession process will remain intact. I think people are looking for, searching for other formulas, Uh, and also trying to find a way to save the refugee deal in October and sort of do something, find a midway solution whereby the relationship is basically established, but in name only. Uh, everyone is aware of the problem, but except uh, in different from the relationship with the United States, Turks are not really feeling they need Europe at this point. Not the people in government, not the people in Ankara. Piri, the reporter for European Parliament, was in Ankara this week. She found it very difficult to get meetings with Turkish officials. Um, so there is a sense in Turkey now uh, there is uh, that we maybe don't need Europe. We're all our, on our own, etc. This is not appealing in the business community because I think ending the accession process would have huge repercussions for the Turkish economy. But uh, in terms of the political elite, right now there is a bit of a, uh, there is a bit of an anti-European current. I have to say uh, it will be very important to keep dialogue open and have Europeans come and visit, but there really hasn't been much, to be very honest with you, and there haven't been very high-level meetings, and uh, we're already almost in September. In other words, we just have more or less a month uh, to try to find a formula whereby the refugee deal can survive and Turkey's accession process can survive. It will be up to Germany. It's. It, Everything that I gather from Turkish officials points me in the direction of Germany. So, but, that, but again, in Germany, the whole coup and Petrullah issue and what happens uh, and the uh, Turkey's human rights record is also a major domestic issue. So this is not an easy situation.
0: So what, when you say it's all up to Germany, what does Germany have to do in order to keep things on the road?
1: Find, find the formula and convince the Turks to keep the refugee deal and uh, continue the financial aid and perhaps end the accession and convince other European partners to, 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 to continue the accession
0: process. Okay, so Germany has to do all the work. So what do the Turks do in response to that? Keep the refugees. Keep the refugees. Okay. Um. So, uh, well, I'm sure we're going to be coming back um, to these topics uh, often. Turkey has seemed to become uh, our most regular topic on the on the podcast recently because it's so often in the news. There'll be uh, Turkey in 30 minutes um, rather than the world in 30 minutes if we carry on at this pace. Uh, it's great to talk to both of you again. We've got one more um, thing left to do in this podcast, which is our bookshelf uh, segment. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
2: Uh, well I just finished the book from the last uh podcast, so I can't really talk about that, but I think what I've really been doing instead of reading, uh, is watching um uh, uh an American um television show about the Manhattan project called Manhattan, uh which is about uh which is about the physicists who developed the bomb in Los Alamos, New Mexico and the sort of it's a sort of drama about all of the spying and um, betrayals that went on in the effort to determine which bomb
0: design would be used. And what about you, Asla? I'm revisiting
1: two books I had read before. Um, one is uh, The Extraordinary Life of Gertrude Bell, the, the biography by Janet Wallach, Desert Queen. It's, um, I like going back to it, Gertrude Bell's life and sort of in reference and trying to figure out if she had visited, uh, you know, sort of the locations we're talking that are in the current news, Girablus and uh, Talabiyat and that whole area. And she has been to, she has been to all those places. And the other book I'm reading is uh, by Hanif Avci, Turkish former police commissioner, and police head of Turkish anti-terrorism. Course, who wrote an exposé about the Gulenist infiltration in the police force back in 2010. And writing the book led to his imprisonment. He was uh, um, charged with terrorism by, after writing the book. And uh, now he's hailed as a hero in Turkey because he's seen as an early whistleblower of the whole Gulenist Within the police force, but it's interesting to go back and read parts and compare it with what's happening today.
2: One can move so quickly from hero to terrorist mm-hmm. and back again in Turkey.
1: <laughs> I know. He was uh, charged with belonging to a terrorist organization that we had not heard about. And this was sort of this terrorist group that was created for the purpose of uh, putting him in jail, I think. But you know, he stayed there for about five years.
0: So my, my holiday reading was a book which was recommended on a previous podcast, which was a uh, book by Stefan Zweig, um, t- which is sometimes pronoun- uh, translated as shooting stars, sometimes as decisive moments in in history. So a really dangerous book to to read because he talks about these 12 decisive moments that happens. And in the current mood, whenever I was trying to work out what, what's happening with everything, every single one it's a template for understanding the present. You see false analogies everywhere. But it's, uh, it's beautifully written and lovely little vignettes. Um, that brings this podcast to, to an end. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please uh, give it a ranking uh, or a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to it. Uh, tweet about it. Post about it on ECFR's Facebook page or on your own. And uh, do email me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, from Asla, Aylin Dashpash, um, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke, and our editor is Katarina Botel Atsinaro.